robber, a killer, and part of Chopper Reed's overcoat gang in Pentridge Prison. He had a ginger goatee, and while in prison for murdering two sex workers, he would confess to a 20-year-old cold case. This is the story of Gregory Bluey Brazzle. I'm your host Cambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Tonight I have a story from Australia about a ruthless killer that not only was an arsonist, an armed robber, rapist and a murderer, but this violent psychopath was breveled in prison for snitching on other inmates. And as we know, snitches get stitches, dog. So who is Gregory Bluey Brazzle? He's as mad as a cut snake. But let's get down to his story. Now, bluey is a term we call uh, Aussies call people with red or ginger hair. And we've done so since World War One, apparently. In fact, we have a few names for redheads, such as Ranga, Ginger, Bloodnut, Fanta Pants, and Annie. We are a strange lot. Now, now it may seem to some that this is a derogatory term. But in Australia, we use it more as an affectionate term and even the former Prime Minister and redhead Julia Gillard once said on national radio during an interview that she was happy to be a ranger icon. Now, that was after the host mentioned his redhead daughter's support for her. Why? Bluey and not ready. Well, I think it's the blue eyes. Anyway, we're getting off topic. Gregory Bluey Brazzle, born 17th of November 1954 at Blacktown in New South Wales, the son of a New South Wales police detective. And from what I can find on the internet, he was an altar boy and extremely intelligent. He was also good at boxing and played in seven junior rugby league premierships. Now, rugby league, for those in the US, we don't wear helmets, but we throw the ball around. He joined the army in 1974, age 20, and trained at the 1RTB, or 1st Recruit Training Battalion, at Kapuka, where uh, regular soldiers undergo about 80 days of training. Improvise, adapt and overcome. Have you ever wondered about being at Bear Grylis's party and halfway through he says he ran out of soda water and you're drinking a lemon, lime and bitters? Ooh. Anyway, I'm getting sidetracked again. So, he did his training at Kapuka, 14 Platoon B Company. In September 1974, he was posted to the Australian Army Medical Training School at Hillsville in Victoria. In 1976, he took five privates hostage during an exercise and they had to fire warning shots before he would release them. Now, they then kicked him out of the army. He then started a plumbing apprenticeship 
and soon his girlfriend Elizabeth Georgina Sanders fell pregnant. Around the end of August or early September 1977, Elizabeth gave birth to a girl they named Lorraine Michelle, taking her mother's name of Sanders. On September the 27th, 1977, the four-week-old girl would be rushed to Frankston Hospital with what ambulance officers described as a black eye. Elizabeth told ambulance officers that she'd rolled off the bed and had fallen 18 inches to the carpeted floor. The baby was later transferred to the Royal Children's Hospital where she died after an operation. Detectives interviewed both Elizabeth and Bluey over the death and found many inconsistencies in their statements and a coronial inquest was unable to determine the exact cause of death. Neither parent was charged over the death of the four-week-old girl. Now, if that had happened nowadays, then I'm sure they would have done Bluey for the death. Some people shouldn't have children. Anyway. Now, I'd like to give credit for some of the following to Alyssa Hunt, Harold's son, and, as usual, court records. In 1977, Bluey was charged and found guilty of possess and smoke, a drug of addiction, and of being unlawfully on premises. But it wasn't long before Bluey was imprisoned for armed robbery of a service station, robbery, theft of a car for use in a felony, speeding and unlicensed driving. During the trial, he sacked his legal reps and defended himself. He appealed and was given a retrial, and during questioning on why he was driving around in a stolen car that had been used in an armed robbery, he said that he was used to driving around in stolen cars. (laughs) August 20, 1979, Bluey, while in an exercise yard at Melbourne's Pentridge Prison, stabs Mark Chopper Reed in the guts during a fight. Now, Bluey says it was self-defence after Chopper attacked and stabbed him in his arm. He said, All I can remember is swinging my arm to block whatever was coming. I was trying to deflect the knife, but I wasn't quick enough. After Chopper stabbed me, I kicked him in the side and hit him on the chin. Chopper dropped the knife. I retrieved it. He ran towards me and I stabbed him in the guts. He tackled me and I stabbed him in the back. In my opinion, I was fighting for my life. Now, apparently, this fight was over Chopper wanting to take over the H division at Pentridge. Chopper had asked Bluey if he was with him or against him. And Bluey had told Chopper that if it was my choice, I was against him. And so in the exercise yard later, Chopper approached (laughs) approached Bluey pulled out the knife and said, here's yours, Blue. Now, if you know of Chopper Reed at all, you can't imagine it in your head how he would have said that. Look, I might have to do an episode on Chopper one day. Now, while inside, Bluey is witness to the murder of an inmate by another inmate. Bluey is released from prison and in January 1983, he and a friend break into a house of another acquaintance hoping to find a stash of cash. They don't find the cash and leave only with a credit card, but then they burn down the building. He would ultimately be convicted of arson for this in 1986 after his accomplice dobs him in. In 1983, he refuses to answer questions from a judge in court 
over the murder he witnessed while inside. That murder I told you about just before. And he's charged and sentenced for contempt of court and gets two years. So at this stage, he does not snitch, even though he's been snitched on. In 1984, he's convicted of bashing a prison guard at Pentridge's H Division. In 1985, he goes on the first of many hunger strikes for better conditions in jail. He tells media that there are no programs for rehabilitation and that crims get released with a hundred bucks and have no choice but to go back to their old ways and end up back inside. Now, he does have a point here. At one stage during one of his hunger strikes, he told media that he was released from jail with a hundred bucks and the first thing he did was go and rob a servo. He had no other way to survive. Now, Bluey gets early release from prison, but he can't stay out of trouble. In November 1987, he is again convicted of armed robbery for offences he committed in 1982, where he robbed the same bank on two different occasions. Now, that's just the major stuff he did, and I don't want to go into too much detail on any of it, as we now come to a particular violent time in Bluey's life. In January 1990, Bluey is on a pre-release program before he gets full parole in May later in that year. He and his wife get a house at 36 Hart Street, Colac. Now that's about two hours drive southwest of Melbourne. Bluey forms a friendship with a Mrs. Gillian Finnegan and soon Bluey was buying pot off them. The Finnegans not only could provide small quantities, but they could also get much larger amounts of pot. Bluey at this stage organised to purchase a pound of ganja from the Finnegans and at the same time, Bluey contacted police and offered to become an informant for drug trafficking in the area. Bit of a dog act, I'm not sure why he would want to do that, but maybe it'll become clearer later. Well, on the 7th of May, the Finnegans handed over the pound of ganja with the agreement that Bluey would pay them $5,300 on the 10th of May, a few days later. Now, Bluey on the 8th of May told the Finnegans the police were going to raid their house in the near future. Of course he'd know that because he's a bloody informant. Now, on the 10th of May, Bluey met with Mrs. Finnegan and told her she would have to come with him to where he'd buried the cash in the bush. He told her to get in the back of his car and cover herself with a blanket so no one would see her. She was able to work out where they were going and when they got there, Bluey reckoned he couldn't find the money. He allegedly then pulled a gun on Mrs. Finnegan and told her to get undressed. He then sexually assaulted her, tied her up and put her in the back of the car. He then drove her back to Colac. On the 28th of May 1990, 36-year-old Sharon Taylor, who operated the Lamore Escort Service from a home at 41 Lawton Avenue, Geelong, asked a friend to look after her four-year-old daughter when she got a call from a customer to meet her at a hotel. When she failed to return, the alarm was raised and police called. Sharon would be listed as a missing person and police had hardly any leads to go on. Now on the 13th of September, 
30-year-old sex worker and mother of two, Rosalind Hayward of Glen Waverley, went missing after driving a friend down to the shops at Mulgrave and then on to meet a customer at Hampton. A few days later, her car was found at St Kilda and that's not that far away. Police were keen to link both women's disappearances and on the 23rd of September, bush walkers near Colac spotted a hand protruding from a mound of dirt close to a track leading from Barongarook Road. It would be identified as Sharon Taylor and she'd been stabbed at least five times with four of those through the heart. On the 1st of October 1990, the body of Rosalind Haywood would be found at Sorrento after a tip-off to police. She was found partially clothed with a few branches attempting to hide a body. She'd been drugged with legactyl and strangled and then her body was dumped. Now in between the disappearances of Sharon Taylor and Rosalind Hayward, Kerry Luke, also a sex worker, had been raped, sexually abused, imprisoned in the boot of Bluey's car and taken very close to the beach where Rosalind Hayward's body was found. So here we have two bodies in two locations. Two other women were also attacked and taken to both of these locations. Now while researching this, I came across page 3 of the Age newspaper dated the 2nd of October 1990. Now if you can get hold of this, this is amazing. Now in the far right column is a piece where Bluey has been refused bail for the alleged rape and abduction of Kerry Luke. Right next to this story, in the main body of the page, is an article about police finding the body of Rosalind Hayward. At this stage, there is no link, or at least police did not let on in the media media that there was a link, between the rape and both the murders. So to find that on the same page right next to each other is absolutely amazing. Now these two women that that were abducted and raped by Bluey, Gillian Finnegan and Kerry Luke, would ultimately give evidence against Bluey as they could prove that he knew about the areas that the bodies of Sharon and Rosalind were found, although he tried to deny that he'd ever been to either of those areas. Now, again, without going into too much detail about the two murder cases and the rape case that Bluey was now facing, he did get done and sentenced to life in prison. Now, one thing I've yet to mention tonight is a murder that happened in 1982 at Mordialock, about a 30-minute drive down the eastern seaboard of Melbourne. Now, I should have asked Tara how you pronounce that Mordialock. Anyway, let's go on. Now, I'll largely read from court documents. It was the 20th of September 1982. Mrs. Mildred Teresa Hanna, age 51, was working alone in a hardware and giftware store that she and her husband owned and operated at 77 Warren Road, Mordialock. The store also operated a state savings bank sub-agency and a dry cleaning depot. At approximately 12.50pm, a person who lived behind the shop next to number 77 
heard a noise that she described as a loud bang and the voice of a woman calling for help. She entered the hardware and giftware store and discovered Mrs. Hanma grievously injured and lying on the floor. The ambulance and police were called. In the meantime, the victim had telephoned her husband at their home in Mount Eliza. He'd not gone to work that day because he was recovering from a hernia operation. He said that his wife was gasping on the telephone and finding it difficult to speak, but managed to say, Dick, I've been robbed and I'm dying. The ambulance and police officers found Mrs. Hamner bleeding from an apparent gunshot wound to her upper body, but she was still conscious and capable of some conversation. She described her attacker as being a man aged around 25, 5 feet 7 inches tall and with ginger hair. She described the firearm he was carrying and said that he'd left through the front door. Mrs. Hamner was treated at the scene and then conveyed by ambulance to the Alfred Hospital, where she died at 3.20pm. She'd been shot once in the right chest between the second and third ribs. The pathologist who conducted the post-mortem examination concluded that she'd been shot from the front. Now, this case went cold. Really cold. By the time Bluey was murdering sex workers in the 1990s, nearly eight years had passed. And it would be another ten years that in August of 2000, the Bluey would make contact with a detective he knew and offered to confess to the murder of Mildred Teresa Hamner. Bluey told the interviewing police that he entered the store at around lunchtime carrying a .22 rifle hidden behind a sports bag. He approached Mildred and asked her to cut a key for him. While she was occupied with that task, Bluey closed and locked the front door and turned a sign around to read back in five minutes. He confronted Mildred with the rifle, stated that it was an armed robbery and demanded money. He obtained in excess of $3,000 from the safe and cash register. He then told Mildred to lie on the ground as he was going to tie her up. While she was lying on the ground, Bluey discharged a single bullet into her back. A homemade silencer on the firearm failed and when the gun went off, it sounded like a cannon. Bluey said that he remembered the blood was seeping through her clothing and knew that she was critically injured and would not survive. All he wanted to do was get away. He did not waste time reloading and firing another shot. In his interview, Bluey told police that he'd been offered $30,000 to murder the woman. He'd said a former prison inmate had given him the name of the person who wanted her killed. He claimed that that person was her husband. Apart from that, police investigations confirmed his account. Moreover, a forensic scientist analysed the clothing worn by Mildred and confirmed that contrary to the opinion of the pathologist who conducted the autopsy in 1982, she had been shot from behind, as Bluey said. The part of his account that the police rejected was the identity of the person who allegedly engaged him and it would appear from the portions of transcript set out below other aspects of the contract killing. 
in his victim impact statement tendered on the plea, Mr. Hanmer said that the allegations against him filled him with disgust and anger. Now, investigators and even the judge doubted that the murder of Mildred was a paid-for hit by her commission by her husband. They knew it was a robbery gone wrong. But in sentencing, there were quite a few mitigating factors. Now, let's go to the court records again. Now, the judge says, There is, however, a cluster of mitigating factors in your present situation, and which is relevant to the proper sentence to be imposed upon you. Firstly, after nearly 20 years, you have come forward wholly of your own volition and confessed to the crime. Second, your coming forward and confession was motivated by contrition and true remorse. I don't know about that, about true remorse from people like him. Anyway, third, the authenticity of that motive is not deflected or derogated from by any collateral purpose or seeking by you of advantage. Fourth, your confession has solved a long unsolved crime. Fifth, it has brought some partial finality to the suffering of the living victims, but they will suffer for as long as they live. Sixth, you have pleaded guilty to the crime. Seventh, you have genuine and plenary remorse. Eighth, you have not at any time since you came forward and confessed sought to avoid full responsibility for your actions. You also waived the benefit of a possible indemnity. Ninth, you told the truth to the police, involving, as that did, the placing of this crime in the most serious category of murder, a paid execution. Tenth, you've been in continuous custody since September 1990 and face lengthy further imprisonment and you are in a state of poor health. Now, this ninth one where he said you told the truth to police, involving that it did placing of this crime in the most serious category of murder, a paid execution. Now, that's what Bluey was trying to say, although they didn't believe him. But that's actually worse than just going in there and shooting someone in an armed robbery. So, the judge had really a good think about this one. He also said, first, a life sentence for a man in the applicant's state of health coupled with no possibility of release before the age of 75, is crushing. This is not one of those cases where a crushing sentence must unavoidably be imposed. Second, there's a merit in the applicant's submission that, on the one occasion when he did the right thing, he was severely punished. Few, if any, prisoners serving long sentences will confess to unsolved murders unless a discount is given and seen to be given. If a life sentence is appropriate, that can only be done by fixing a shorter non-parole period than would otherwise have been in the in this case. Now, when we spoke to Jeremy a few weeks ago about parole and why they have it and all this, basically the judge is trying to say that he's done the right thing. The th- problem is he's so old now, that any sentence he gets, he's going to be really old when he gets out. And that's what they call is a crushing sentence. Anyway, he also says it should be emphasised that this is a very unusual case. 
It's not just a plea of guilty or a confession. It's a confession made by a man in prison who already cannot be released before the age of 65, who waives an offer of immunity and who knows that his confession will, at the very least, add a number of years to to his existing non-parole period. So, if he lives that long... I worked it out he won't be eligible for parole until 2029. Now, he could have been eligible for parole next year. So it's added about 10 years to his non-parole period. So what made this highly intelligent bloke go feral and we're not spending his life robbing, burning shit down or raping and murdering is in prison where, again, he wasn't that good at all. He was a pretty much a thug. Well, apparently, when he was playing touch football as a teenager, he ran into a telegraph pole and knocked himself out. In the next few years, he found himself being knocked out for various reasons as well. Remember, he was a boxer. In 1984, doctors found he'd sustained brain damage. So maybe this damage is what set him off. It's hard really to say, but he never raised a mental illness defence in any of his trials. When he was in prison, Bluey conned an old woman into depositing more than 30000 Australian dollars into a TAB or telephone betting account for his own personal use. I think she was an ex-prison guard or she worked in the prison system. Uh, what, what is wrong with people? The shit in this story tonight is the fact that he gets out of prison. He's on parole and he goes and rapes and murders. Absolutely horrific that this happens time and time again. It's just like they tick boxes with the parole board and they let them out. But what do you do with these broken people? You can try to keep fixing a broken car until you just send it to the wreckers to get crushed. And then you get a new one. Sometimes these broken people, and we must remember, some of these people are fucked up because their family was fucked and generations of their family were fucked up. But there must come a point when you don't try to fix them. You just keep them out of society in a human wrecking yard. I reckon he killed his four-week-old daughter as well. The prick needs a karma buster hitting. So that's the story of Gregory Brazzle or Bluey Boomfagalunga. So as I mentioned last week, I'll be trying to do a live show in the coming weeks. I'm not sure if it will be live or I will have to tape it. It all depends what the internet's like as I'll be going to Thailand on Friday. It will hopefully it will be unedited. I'm not gonna edit it at all. It will involve deck chairs, beer, sand, and I'm sure you're going to love it. I will strip the audio out and upload it to the normal place, but more details as time approaches. So, onto the shout-outs for patrons, and this week we have a few. First up is Faye Daniel. Now, the only Faye Daniel I know is from a great podcast called The Marble Orchard Podcast, which features mysteries and murders of the American Midwest. This has become a must-listen for me, and I can't wait for each week's show. Faye co-hosts with Prickly Pete, so hi, Faye and Pete, and be careful of those energy drinks. Also, thanks so much to Marianne Mills for your kind donation. Thank you all so much. 
And also, if you don't want to do the monthly Patreon thing, you can donate via paypal.me forward slash true crime island. Thanks so much to Maggie James who made a generous donation via PayPal this week. Thank you so very much. Okay, next if you want t-shirts, mugs of rage or a tote bag or even a beach towel, you can go to truecrimeisland.threadless.com where you can pick up your swag, loot or merch. Now, there was a few problems this week with Threadless orders. So if you've got a mug that's all printed wrong, or a t-shirt or whatever, don't hesitate to contact me and Threadless. They said there was a problem when they sent out their uh, orders to the people who print all their stuff. So get in contact with them if you've got any issues. If you want key rings, pin stickers or koozies, you need to email me directly. That's cambo at truecrimeisland.com and I can sort that out for you. As you know, my philosophy is to bring you an ad-free podcast as I know how annoying the ads can be sometimes so the island is totally listener-supported and don't forget, you can not only financially help out the island but you can also support it by rating, reviewing and sharing the love. Grab a friend's phone and sub them to the podcast. Next is promo time and this week it is from the Dumb and Busted podcast by Alison and Hannah. It's a true crime comedy podcast with stories of insane stupidity and exceptional genius. Definitely give it a listen. Don't forget to join the Close Group on Facebook. Hook up on Twitter and Instagram. And the handle for those two is at True Crime Island. And just search for the Facebook group under True Crime Island. I do try my best to answer all posts and emails, but if you really need to speak to me, then email is the best as I sometimes get a little little bit lost in the Twitter feeds and sometimes miss the Facebook messages. Our amazing mods or myself will let you into Facebook. Hi, Jason and Senga. We have two new mods, Erica Little Biddy, which I'm sure if you're on Facebook at all, you will know her, and of course, Susan McNutt, who joined to help out the island. Thank you all so much. Well, that's about it for tonight, and lots of love to Maggie James. So this has been Cambo, and you've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browsing history. Boomfuckabunga. What podcast brings you true stories of exceptionally smart and insanely dumb crimes every week? Dumb and busted, obviously. But Hannah, where is your one-stop shop if you want to hear about a killer nurse, a pervy arsonist, or a group of hella old dudes breaking into a vault? Dumb and busted. Allison, come on, seriously? We host the show together. Okay, last question. Where can I go if I need to hear the number one song of 1999, I Want It That Way? What? The Backstreet Boys album Millennium? How did we even get on this tangent? Oh, okay. Sorry for being the only one who's ever fallen victim to their tight harmonies and timeless songs. Anyway, please listen and subscribe to Dumb and Busted on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Crime you later!